The following podcast may contain graphic content and details that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Digital Forensics in Real Life. Today is part one of a two-part episode with a case that involved so many truckloads of evidence we couldn't pack it all into one podcast. It involved two trials, three main suspects, and hours of forensic analysis by our guest and his team. This case is the murder of Mary Yoder, a chiropractor in Buffalo, New York, who was poisoned by colchicine, a deadly substance that has agricultural and medicinal uses. Our guest today is Tony Martino, the forensic investigator who worked through the case. As a 20-year veteran of the Utica, New York Police Department, Tony is an expert in cybersecurity, computer crime investigation, and digital forensics. He's a nine-year member of the United States Secret Service Electronic Crime Task Force, a co-founder of the Central New York Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, and he received the Wally Howard Jr. Award for Excellence in Law Enforcement from the U.S. Attorney's Office. With that, here's Tony to tell us about the case. Hi, Tony. Hi, good morning. Thanks for coming on here with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I appreciate your willingness to talk about this case because there are certainly a lot of details for us to go through, right? Yeah, this this is definitely one of the more interesting cases, certainly in my career. How long have you been doing this, Tony? Uh, Longer than I wish to admit. (laughs) And when I say Uh, this, I mean digital forensics. So digital forensics uh, would be approximately 20 years at this point. So, yeah, beginning with uh, digital forensics back in the days of floppy disks. Right, when you're probably just looking for a deleted file. Yeah, yeah, you, you literally could and did do digital forensics with a hex editor, right? which you know, probably most of your audience uh, isn't even familiar with that. Just looking at some raw data. That's it, raw data. What, what's here, what was here yesterday, last week, et cetera. All right. Well, tell me how you became involved with this case, the death of Mary Yoder. I got bamboozled by the sheriff's department. That's what happened. <laughs> so actually, literally, uh, you know, great people at the United County Sheriff's Department, good friends. And uh, one of the investigators I've worked a lot with gave me a call and said, uh, hey, we have this case and uh, there's some computers involved and we're really struggling uh, to, to kind of get off the ground with the investigation. Could you take a look at a few things? And, you know, of course I said yes, because I always say yes. And... Um, then they showed up and backed a van up to our facility and started unloading uh, <laughs> just mountains of equipment. So uh, uh, that that was late 2015. And uh, really at the time, it was just uh, a death of unknown origin. And uh, they didn't, you know, they had some leads, but not a lot. And they were just trying to figure out why this uh, otherwise perfectly healthy woman had uh, passed away so suddenly. And she was a chiropractor, is that right? That's correct. And they come to you with some digital evidence, and what do you do with that? So we we just started to to dig in, not knowing what we were looking for. That was really the the needle in the haystack of you know, here's a pile of computers and and tablets and some cell phones and a lot of things that weren't valuable like typewriters and fax machines and, and et cetera that they had also shown up with. Uh, and really just you know, casting a really, really wide net 
just anything about, uh, you know, was there any health problems that maybe even her family didn't know about that she was confiding in someone else? Or was she doing searches related to, uh, you know, health issues she was having? Was there anyone who had, you know, ill intent towards her uh, that we weren't aware of and the family wasn't aware of and her coworkers weren't aware of? Uh, because from, from the investigation up to that point, no one could say a bad word about this woman. She was just a, you know, a happy person, got along with everyone, uh, and you know, perfectly healthy and et cetera. So they really, they really had very little to go on. And so in our early days, it was, it was a little bit of a fishing expedition. At this point, how many pieces of digital evidence did you have? So the initial uh, group, I, I would say we were in the 15, 15 plus. Uh, pieces of digital evidence, um, you know, computers, cell phones, tablets, et cetera. So I'm guessing you went ahead and started your examination on these devices, right? We did. And what did you turn up? So initially, not a lot. We were, like I said, we, we, we didn't have a lot to go on. So we were looking for, you know, was, was Mary having health problems no one knew about? And the answer was no. Uh, even things like, so Mary worked with her husband. They co-owned and co-operated the chiropractic office. They were both chiropractors. Uh, so, you know, the, the obvious question is, uh, you know, is there a problem in the marriage? And the answer was no. Uh, in fact, it, it appeared to be uh, quite the opposite from you know, examining all of, all of the devices. And were there problems with patients? And nothing we could see. Were there problems with employees? Nothing we could see. Was there, was there anything that has changed in her life you know, in the past six months to a year? And, and generally speaking, the answer to all of that was no. We, we were not coming up with a whole lot that was helping the investigation. So you were able to examine devices that belonged to Mary? Uh, a mixture. So they belong to Mary. Yes, she had uh, a phone and a tablet and a computer, but also all of the devices at the the business. The business was set up, as we, it was explained to us, where users could, could basically sit down at the closest device. And so it was possible she had used other devices. So it, like I said, it caused us to, to cast a pretty wide net early on. So when you're doing your examinations and you're trying to I'm assuming do some keyword searches, looking for some, just really anything. Is that right? That's correct. Long lists of keyword searches. Um, and just look at, you know, looking through browsing history, looking through recently accessed documents, looking through search terms, uh, you know, just all of the, the general things that, that started an investigation that didn't have a distinct focus. And at the same time, I'm guessing there are some other folks on the investigative team that are doing some work as well, right? There, there is. So, the, you know, the sheriffs had uh, an investigation going where they were interviewing people and they were also receiving information that we in, in the forensics laboratory were not initially privy to. So they were getting uh, laboratory reports from the hospital and medical records from from the hospital prior to her death. They're getting over time the autopsy report and then the toxicology. All those things are are slowly trickling into the sheriffs, which is causing them to then start refining our work uh, without telling us the entire picture, which is you know pretty traditional for those of us you know sitting in the forensics lab. Uh, so we were getting. Uh, little dribbles of information. Uh, can you check for anything related to poisons? 
and uh, without explaining why, right? So obviously now in hindsight, we understand that they were starting to get medical records that led one to believe that a, a poison could have been used to cause Mary's death, either accidentally, intentionally, et cetera. Uh, you know, and, and over time, that just kept narrowing and narrowing. So were you able to find anything? So early on, uh, when we were looking for general information about poison, we found a little bit. It, it wasn't remarkably interesting. Uh, there, there were a couple pages found in webcache on one of the computers that uh, there were articles related to poison and things that different substances that were poisonous to humans. It wasn't a light bulb moment for me because this was a medical practice. Uh, so. I, I'm not intimately familiar with what they do in that practice, but it, it, it wasn't, to me, it wasn't a, an aha moment yet. So were you able to provide some digital evidence then that helped the investigators? I mean, you said it was a lot of going back and forth, right? Which a lot of times with these investigations, it is. You're trying to look at your digital evidence. They're finding out a few more details and giving them to you, as you said, kind of trickling down to you. And you're able to refine what you're doing, but did you end up with an, an end report or something that did have something to help them? Uh, yeah, so absolutely. It was a lot of back and forth, probably one to two times a week uh, minimum. And then, of course, as as we got farther down the, the investigation, it was more like one to two times a day. Uh, but yeah, so we would come back to them and say, Yes, there's there's you know three items in webcache on this one computer uh, that were related to poisons and you know toxic substances in human beings and you know their eyeballs would get big and and then okay we'll get back to you and they would they went off for a few days and then they came back to us and this is really where we started to understand where the, where this was going and they said so that computer that you found those on. Uh, from our investigation, we know that is being predominantly used by the office manager. Um, can you tell us more about who uses that computer, what kind of uses it's getting, et cetera, et cetera? So, so that was really the first point where we had heard Caitlin Conley's name. And they said, you know, here's the name of the office manager and here's her duties. Uh, you know, she takes phone calls, schedules appointments, and does medical records, and you know all that kind of stuff. Uh, and they're like, this, from what we're being told, this is primarily the computer she uses. Can you guys, you know, basically start to figure out if that's all true? Which we did, and and it was. We we actually started to realize that you know she was using that computer the bulk of the day, uh, including for a lot of things that had nothing to do with her job. She was going to school, she was shopping, et cetera, et cetera, and that was all that was all tied to her. So were her devices, like her personal devices, her phone or maybe even a personal laptop, was that provided to you initially? No. Okay. So in terms of the office manager, you only have her computer. We have her computer at work, right? Her work computer. We have all the other devices from the workplace. Uh, and eventually we also got all the personal devices belonging to the odors. So both Bill and Mary, cell phones, tablets, and any, any devices from their personal usage at home. But yeah, that's all we had at that time. Okay. So I understand that there were a couple of different trials that occurred for this particular case, right? In the preparation for this first trial, what was your role? 
So uh, preparing for the first trial, which which happens in May of uh, 17, uh, you know, our role was really to, you know, find as much as we could to to help support the the sheriff's investigation. And uh, actually, there, it really had two two almost different tacks to it. Uh, on one side, you know, every piece of evidence that could support the uh, belief and the accusation that Caitlin Conley intentionally poisoned Mary Yoder. Uh, and separately was to attempt to identify if there's any evidence at all that shows that Bill Yoder was interested in or complicit in Mary Yoder's death. Okay, so Caitlin's a suspect. Yes. You're looking to see if perhaps Bill, the husband, has anything to do with this. Is there anyone else that is possibly a suspect or, or maybe even compliant with any of this? You know, early in the investigation, like I said, there was no suspects. So, so this investigation actually started almost like the textbook investigation where you, you enter it with no pre preconceived notions and, and no you know, decisions up front about who might or might not be your suspects. Um, Bill, Bill was always the obvious because the, the spouse is always the obvious. You, you have to look at the spouse. Um, you know, there, there were some things along the way leading up to that first trial. And, you know, obviously our community is relatively small and, you know, you, you hear things and you know things. And it was pretty well known that part of the defense was, you could see from the motions they were filing, et cetera, part of their defense was going to be, uh, Caitlin Conley has nothing to do with this. It, it was Bill Yoder. He has motive. He has uh, reason their, their marriage was not, uh, good, they were having problems, et cetera, et cetera. So we knew that was coming. Uh, so it, it made obvious sense to really dig in and spend some time proving or disproving what, what his involvement could be and whether or not those those accusations could be true at all. The other person that as we kept grinding closer and closer to, to trial uh, was her son, Adam. Uh, we had known that uh, there had been some some amount of uh, strife be, between him and, and his family. He had worked in the business, not worked in the business. He had lived locally. He had moved away at times. Um, so it, it obviously, he was a, another one to obviously focus on. And there had been some evidence that was brought up by the investigators that appeared to be someone was trying to tip off the police that Adam was actually the killer of Mary Yoder. So he became an obvious focus on our side as well. So because of those accusations, did that, did that bring some digital evidence or additional digital evidence to you? Yes. So uh, we eventually, uh, the sheriff submitted Adam Yoder's computer. He had a laptop and his cell phone for, for examination. So, so yeah, it just kept adding to the, to the mountain of digital evidence in the case. So were you able to find anything that you were able to provide within a report or anything that might be helpful within the investigation? Um, so there, there were quite a few things that were helpful, you know, beginning with what wasn't there. Uh, so the examination of Bill Yoder's devices, both work and home, showed absolutely nothing that that could indicate that he was involved uh, in an attempt or a successful attempt to kill 
Mary, there was absolutely no indication found anywhere that there was any issues between him and Mary. Uh, it was the exact opposite, actually. Everything we found and the deeper we dug and the farther back we went showed just what, by all accounts, appeared to be a perfectly normal, healthy, happy marriage. So, so that was really piece number one. Um, Adam became piece number two. Uh, and there was absolutely nothing found there to support uh, the concerns that he had an interest in causing Mary's death or did. Um, the tips that were given to the sheriff uh, related to Adam were not did not bear out in the digital evidence. Um, they're just the the digital evidence didn't show him involved in the acquisition of poison. Uh, they actually didn't show that uh, there was a contentious relationship between him and his parents or him and his mother at all. So, so once again, the, the the digital evidence didn't support this anonymous tip that the that the sheriffs had had received. So, what we were left with was Caitlin Conley, and w what did that support? And as we were heading to trial and continuing to examine all this evidence, because along the way on top of everything i've already described the sheriff's executed a search warrant at her house uh, and brought another van full of equipment from her all of her siblings her uh, her parents her parents business in-home business offices etc cetera, etc cetera. so literally a van full of digital evidence um, but what we started to find was that where evidence didn't exist to tie Billy Yoder to the acquisition of a poison or Adam Yoder to the acquisition of poison, there were things that we were finding to tie Caitlin Conley to those things. The computer, specifically the computer she used at work, we were able to find creation of what eventually becomes the purchase orders for the poison that killed Mary Yoder. We're able to find that, um, that Caitlin Conley created the anonymous tip letter that gets sent to the sheriff. She created it on her work computer. She created it at a time when she was also accessing other accounts that were personal to her that only she would have access to. Uh, so we were able to nicely create user attribution um, where she's logging into her college uh, online accounts at two different schools, which basically bookended her her editing of the letter that eventually goes to uh, the sheriff with the anonymous tip in it. Um, and we were able to begin to find more research that was being conducted on that computer while Caitlin Conley is using it into poisons and specifically uh, the poison that killed Mary Yoder. Tell me about this letter that she created then on that computer. Tell me how you knew she did that. So the, the letter uh, goes to the sheriff and actually the medical examiner uh, on paper. So it's actually mailed uh, to, to them through the, the Postal Service. Later, uh, they, they're able to get DNA off the uh, glue on the envelope and uh, tie it to Caitlin Conley, but that comes much, much later. Uh, we, we had already known. So uh, what we found out is she was using... Google Docs to edit this letter, and she had created a uh, a, G, a free Gmail account, a free Google account, in Adam Yoder's name, 
And the interesting thing about that account is it has his name on it and it has his birth year on it right in the name, uh, right in the email address. But yet it was never once accessed from any of his devices. And it's routinely accessed from her computer. And it had also been accessed from her cell phone. Um, and so, and we had also seen other indications where not only had it been accessed from Caitlin Conley's cell phone, but it had been logged into and the password had been saved and cached to her phone. So, so we knew that the account existed. Uh, later, we also knew after the sheriffs did some search warrants and subpoenas with Google, we also knew that it had only been accessed from, from two locations ever. It had been accessed from the chiropractic office and it had been accessed from Caitlin Conley's cell phone. That's it. And that was from <laughs> returns, search warrant returns that were received from Google. From Google, correct. So obviously Google keeps track of IP addresses dates, times. So um, the interesting thing is they keep track of the first IP address, the, the initiation IP address when the account is created. They keep that forever. Um, so you'll always have that. Um, and we were able to also get, uh, or the sheriffs were able to get a, a whole pile of them from different access over time. So, so we knew that that account, even though it had Adam's name on it, had never been accessed on any of Adam's devices, had only been used on devices tied to Caitlin Conley, um, including her cell phone, which obviously she has personal, you know, physical control over. So now we found the letter being edited in Google Docs, and we actually found cached web pages because, of course, Google Docs happens in a browser. Um, and the web pages are actually cached at stages of development of the letter. So we can actually watch it from one paragraph to two paragraphs to three paragraphs. And then we actually see it get retracted and edited back down to two and language changed and then uh, eventually end up at its final format, uh, which we see you know, in paper when it goes out to uh, the sheriff and the ME. Uh, but, you know, one of the questions always in digital forensics is, well, who's at the keyboard, right? That, that's always the question, right? Who's sitting there and prove it. So we, we spent extensive time looking at use, user attribution because this was a computer in the chiropractic office. Uh, it, it wasn't under really lock and key. It was not in the patient accessible areas. It was in what, you know, what you would call the back room, but still, uh, anyone else who worked there, you know, chiropractic office. It's not a vault. So we, we were very concerned and the sheriffs were very concerned and the district attorney is very concerned about user attribution. So we spent a lot of time really drilling into what else happens on this computer contemporaneous to this letter being edited. And what we find is Caitlin Conley logs into her college online account literally seconds prior to the start of the letter being edited. And in the middle of the editing, she logs into other accounts that are unique to her. They have nothing to do with her work. No one else would, would ever know what they are. So she's actually repeatedly logging into accessing documents in, in college locations and other private account locations, all while also editing this tipster letter, this anonymous tipster letter that uh, is attempting to implicate Adam as, as killing his mother. So were you able to put this in like, I guess, a timeline or a chronological order 
in order to be able to explain that to the investigators and or the jury? Yes, that's exactly what we did. So we, we actually printed it out and made exhibits. Uh, this, is, this is the Google Doc on this date at this time, uh, and it's in this format. It's one paragraph long, and this is the same exact Google Doc 40 minutes later, and it's two paragraphs long. And this is the same Google Doc uh, an hour and 20 minutes later, and it now has three paragraphs. And then we insert it in the middle of the timeline. Oh, oh and by the way, this is where she goes to this college account successfully logs in, successfully requests a transcript. And oh, here during this section of the editing, this is where she logs into this account. So it, it was a very neat and, and kind of straightforward timeline. So you're asked to testify in court to present that, I'm assuming. Yes. So uh, certainly that gets uh, presented uh, to the jury in, in both trials, actually. It gets, it gets brought up. So tell me how things go at trial. So in the first trial, um, actually, you know, from our standpoint, things went okay. Uh, we presented you know, all of the evidence we had at the time. Uh, we knew we had not looked at every single file, every single folder on every single device by the time trial came. Um, you know, this, this case starts at the very end, for us, at the very end of 2015. Uh, and we don't go to trial till early 2017. So it's, it sounds like a long time, but it's really not when you consider the fact that, uh, first of all, the evidence came in, in groups, right? So it was not all there. It was not all at, at the laboratory day one. Um, the other thing is the first numerous months of this investigation, we had no focus at all, right? It was just a, a fishing expedition. So. In reality, in the end, the first trial was crunch time on our side. We were sitting on what we would estimate to be 35 million plus files across all of the devices uh, and obviously doing our best to focus on what was important to the case and ignore the stuff that likely was not important to the case. Um, but we, we did feel like we showed up at, at trial um, not knowing every single thing we wanted to know, but but we felt confident. Um, I can tell you when I testified in the first trial, and I've testified hundreds of times, you know, state, local, federal, even military trials. And when when you've testified that frequently, you can read the jury. You know, you you can tell. And I could get the sense while I was on the stand that they were not absorbing a lot of the technical things. Um, it was a lot of information, and it was a lot of information in a pretty short time frame for them. Uh, I, I think my my first trial testimony was less than a, a day on the stand. It may have been about four hours, five hours, um, and you know we were jumping from hey look at this timeline related to Google Docs to hey look at this Gmail subpoena response with you know all of these pages and pages of IP addresses and then marry that to Verizon Wireless's subpoena response with pages of dates times and IPs and I could just tell looking at them that they were struggling to to digest the the, the vast amount of information we were throwing at them so uh, you know, no secret in the in the end, we ended up with a hung jury. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's that's where the first trial goes. Okay, so how long did they deliberate or or tell me all the particulars about why that was a hung jury? 
I'm not sure we'll ever know all the particulars. You know, obviously that there's an awful lot that happens in that room that uh, we're not privy to. Um, I do think when the when the prosecutors were able to debrief the jurors who were willing to speak to them, which is you know completely voluntary, um, many of them did say that you know it was just an awful lot of information, and I didn't fully understand what it was saying and. Um, I think there was enough doubt, obviously, in some of their minds. Um, you know, our understanding is that the majority of the jury would have convicted her. Um, the majority of the first jury would have convicted her and was voting to convict her. But, you know, obviously it's a, it has to be unanimous. Uh, we understand that there was only a couple holdouts, uh, to that and but I think even the ones who were voting to convict still were uh, were expressing that there was just so much information and to them not all the dots connected um, they they just weren't able to see you know from office manager to killer and all the dots in between and the letter implicating Adam was a confusing factor. It was a red herring. Um, the um, the defense adding in, uh, you know, trying to implicate Bill Yoder as the husband, um, they, they threw an awful lot of that around at the trial, and I think that sent some people off the trail. And I think some people felt like there wasn't enough to disprove that. Um, you know, they had heard some of the testimony and Bill testified himself. Um, but I think there, it, overall, if you look at the whole first trial and you and you really decompress the whole thing, I think it just wasn't enough of any of it. I see. I see. So just wasn't enough for them to go ahead and um, move forward as a jury uh, that she was guilty. Is that right? Yeah. But obviously the flip side is there wasn't enough doubt for 12 people to say, this is not your killer. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, we believe there was probably 10 people who were saying this was your killer. Uh, so yeah, it, it, there wasn't ev enough evidence that was creating reasonable doubt in 12 people there. There, I think the real thing was the dots just weren't connected enough for them. I think most of the raw material was there. They were just struggling to understand the connection between, you know, this, this, digital evidence, this physical evidence, this medical test results, um, DNA of an envelope, the glue on an envelope married in with, the, you know, there's also a typewriter ribbon that's evidence in this case, and it's kind of important evidence in this case. So now we're stretching out, not we, but the sheriffs are on the stand stretching out this this typewriter ribbon <laughs> and showing it to the jury zoomed in. So... I think they were just struggling to see how all these puzzle, all the puzzle pieces were on the table. I think they were just, those last few people were struggling to see the picture when they all came together. So we have the, the, we have the trial that's complete and now you're waiting for the results. Take me to that moment while, you, while the jury's deliberating. Uh, tell me, tell me what you're doing at that point. I, I didn't stay at the courthouse. <laughs> you know, I've, I've done enough of these trials, and I know this this could drag on and on and on. Um, the the prosecutors had been keeping you know uh, those of us on the investigative team up to date with text messages. 
uh, over over the time, just saying, you know, they've asked for this, they've asked for that, um, they asked for rereading of certain things, and I I was getting skeptical to be honest with you. Um, just to, when when you see a jury asking that many questions, it's obvious that they're struggling, uh, and when when you have a a jury who's struggling in a case like this, you you can be pretty confident that someone's going to just dig their heels in. Uh, so I was kind of expecting what we ended up with. I was just really starting to sweat an acquittal. Um, you know, I, I had of course more information than the jury did because you always do, right? There's certain things that prosecutors choose to use and certain things that they don't either because, they're going to be too difficult to for the jury, or frankly, they don't want to bring up certain subjects because um, you know they can cause issues uh, for their case. So, you know, everything I knew, I was solidly confident that we had the right person. Um, there was no doubt in my mind. I I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt it was not Bill Yoder. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt it was not Adam Yoder. Uh, and every single piece of evidence, digital evidence, said it was Caitlin Conley. And every piece of evidence, non-digital evidence that I had access to, said it was Caitlin Conley. So I was okay, <laughs> but uh, but I was beginning to worry about an acquittal because you know we all know when you do enough of these, you do get to a point sometimes where the jurors just want to go home, uh, and they'll start to uh, you know they'll start to modify their own beliefs just to get out of there. So, um, so I was, I was nervous about an acquittal. Obviously we got to the point and eventually it comes down, uh, after the judge had sent them back multiple times, it eventually comes down as hung. So what was this other evidence you were talking about? So, so there were, there were other non-digital, you know, pieces of evidence that were, were introduced, uh, at the trial and, and talked about during the trial. Um, you know, the, this even included uh, information about uh, the fact that uh, Bill Yoder had a relationship with Mary Yoder's sister after Mary's death. Um, and the, the defense made a lot out of it, and that's their job, right? Um, and I, I think that it caught a lot of headlines, and I think it caught a lot of people's attention, on, you know, even on the jury, because certainly... Uh, if you're looking to sow seeds of doubt, that's a darn good place to start. Um, and it was true. Uh, and and Bill never attempted to to hide it, and he never attempted to uh, to to lie about it. He said, "Yeah, um, you know, her, her her sister had lost her husband in the in the past few years. Now Bill had lost his wife. Uh, they they came close during the you know after Mary's death, and they ended up in a relationship. And um, you know, one of the things where the, that actually did tie back to our world was, you know, the DA's office coming back to us and uh, saying, how far back does this relationship go? <laughs> you have all these devices. It's If it's there, you know, it's got to show somewhere. Um, and, and fortunately, we were able to nullify that. Uh, we, we were able to show that they were not in communication and uh, probably that what I thought was, you know, one of the best pieces of nullifying evidence was there was a time period where um, 
well, well, probably a year, year or so prior to Mary's death, Bill was going to uh, her sister's house to pick something up, and and he didn't know where the house was. Uh, and he he actually had to text message her and say, "Which house is yours? I think I'm on the street." So so certainly we didn't have people who were in this uh, involved in depth relationship if he can't even find her house. Um, and uh, but uh, the defense spent a lot of time talking about that. And and I think uh, I think that that may have uh, weighed on some jurors because you know like I said if you're if you're looking to sow some seeds of doubt it's a, it's a good place to start. So you talked about some poisoning before. So is that ultimately what they said uh, was the cause of death? Yes. Yeah, so she's actually poisoned uh, by uh, a pharmaceutical by a drug called col- colchicine. Uh, it's, it's prescribed, it's a prescription drug, uh, it's used to treat, most often it's used to treat gout. That's, that's what it does. Um, it, it has a couple other uses, um, out there, but that's really kind of its, its core function. Uh, the, there's, I've learned an awful lot about colchicine <laughs> over the, the past few years. Um, so the interesting thing about it is it's prescribed in, minuscule doses it is incredibly potent so the amount of the active ingredient that's in a pill that you are prescribed if you uh if you suffer from gout which uh kind of uh ironically i do and much post this trial and post this case my doctor actually prescribed colchicine for me and i i looked at him i was like you're kidding right we're not going here (laughs) uh but what what you learn is it's prescribed in in absolutely minuscule doses uh it is extremely potent so um the the pills are actually so small they're almost hard to pick up and um it, it takes a, a, a pretty limited amount of this stuff to cause serious damage to a human being uh, or death. And because it's really not that common, it's not the kind of thing that gets tested for routinely in toxicology. So, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Kim, you, you come from a law enforcement background. I come from a law enforcement background. You know, you, you have a, a suspicious death or a death of unknown cause. You know, the first thing we do is start, you know, the ME starts drawing bunches of tubes of blood. And, you know, we're looking for, obviously, you're looking for natural causes, heart attacks, strokes, you know, things like that. And then what are we looking for? We're looking for arsenic. We're looking for, um, you know, for other typical poisons that you would see. Um, and so when they do toxicology after Mary's autopsy, it's blank. There, there's nothing there. You know, all of those long lists of common human toxins um, are, are not present, uh, which just you know leaves everyone involved in this investigation scratching their head further. Uh, so, so yeah, that's uh, that's kind of that stalls the investigation for a while because no one re- really uh, the doctors in the in the hospital can tell you it everything about. Mary Yoder and her demise and her death and her downfall says poisoning. And so far, everything in the toxicology says no poison. So the interesting thing that comes in Caitlin Conley's anonymous tipster letter, uh, which also, interestingly, why would you send an anonymous tip to a medical examiner? Uh, but now you under, you'll understand why she calls out the poison in it. Um, 
she actually spells it right out in the letter and says Mary Yoder was poisoned using colchicine. She misspells colchicine, but anyways. Uh, so it's it's becoming obvious at the time that that letter goes out that to Caitlin Conley's viewpoint, this there is no investigation. Right there, from what she can see, there's nothing. There's nothing on the news. There's nothing in the newspaper. The the police came around once or twice and talked to everyone. You know, did you see anything? Did you smell anything? Did you taste anything? Does Mary acting weird? Has she been sick? You know, all those you know routine questions. And then they vanished. They never came back. Yeah, they came back and took all the devices out of the building. But um, but after that, they never came back again uh, for months. And so from Caitlin Conley's viewpoint, this investigation has ended or stalled. So she decided to give it a jump start. So you mentioned before about a purchase order, though. Tell me about that. Well, so, you, you know, like I said, Colchicine's a, a prescription drug. Um, and uh, you, you got to dig kind of deep to find information about it, because like I said, it's just not that common. Um, interestingly enough... Uh, it had been talked about in a TV show as uh, someone was about a year prior to Mary's death. Uh, there was a TV show where someone was poisoned with colchicine. And we had spent some time trying to prove or disprove whether or not Caitlin had ever watched that show. And we were never able to, to get anything definitively either way. Um, but what you end up finding uh, is that even if you can get your hands on the prescription amount of it, you're not going to kill someone with that. You're going to make them sick. I mean, they're going to be really sick, um, but but you're not going to kill them with it. So uh, what Caitlin actually did was she ordered the raw material. She she ordered raw colchicine, um, and uh, she ordered it from a chemical company. So not from a pharmaceutical uh, standpoint, but... Um, but from a, a chemical supplier. And so she had been searching the internet for where do I get this stuff? And she came up with a few different uh, chemical companies that, that produce the raw, you know, the raw material. Is that legal? Well, uh, it's legal for them to produce it. <laughs> and, you know, whether or not it's, it's, it was legal for her to purchase it becomes, you know, a whole bunch of interesting questions. So what actually happens is the first company says, well, you know, we don't just sell this to you know, people. So who are you and, and why do you want it? And so she drummed up a whole story. Um, she took some reality and said, oh, well, we're a, we're a chiropractic office, but we do medical research here as well. Uh, so she actually took the letterhead from the chiropractic office and modified it slightly, changed the name just slightly, uh, took some of the contact information off of it, but also knowing she's the only one who answers the phone there. So uh, no one else answers the phone. It, it, it goes to voicemail if she doesn't answer it. So. Did you find this on the digital evidence? Yeah. So we actually came up with the document. Um, on this mod, this modified letterhead saying, hey, I'd really like to purchase, uh, you know, an ounce or two of colchicine, which sounds like very little, but is an insane amount. An ounce of colchicine would, you know, would kill, you know, like a neighborhood full of people. Uh, it's it's a lot. Uh, this stuff this stuff is serious. So um, 
the first chemical company says, yeah, no, we don't, we don't really like the smell of this. Uh, we're out. So the second chemical company uh, actually calls. They, they actually make a phone call uh, to the office. And, of course, Caitlin answers the phone. And uh, they say, well, you know, we just want to verify, uh, is this real? Is it, oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's real. We, we're doing some research and uh, how this can help and blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, you got to send us uh, basically a purchase order, a purchase request. So she she dolls up the, the fake letterhead and for requesting it and, uh, and f- actually faxes it to them. Uh, in the trial, uh, the, the prosecutors actually flew the woman from the chemical company in uh, to New York from California to testify about, oh yeah, the, 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 I called and this is what she told me. And, uh, uh, so, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Uh, it was definitely interesting, but, and then of course we, from the digital evidence standpoint said, oh yeah, and here's what we found edited on the computer. Um, and it had actually been printed out and then scanned using Caitlin's phone. Um, so she used a scanning app, uh, and then it got even more interesting because we issued a, a search warrant to the company that produced is the scanning app because lo and behold, every single thing you scan gets stored in their cloud. So they were then able to cough up, oh yeah, here's every document ever scanned with this account. Uh, and it was just a, a whole litany of versions of these purchase requests and versions of other documentation that had to be produced in order to make the chemical company happy. Um, well, eventually they got happy. Uh, eventually after the phone call and after the purchase request and all that stuff happens, uh, they put uh, whatever, I don't remember the exact quantity, an ounce or two ounces, whatever it is of colchicine in the mail and mail it to the chiropractic office. And Caitlin receives it. And Caitlin receives it because she receives all the mail when it gets there. All right. So that that goes along with a lot of this other evidence. And you had the digital evidence to weave in between and support a lot of that. Right. And so then we get to this first trial. It ends up in a hung jury. What happens? So it ends up in a hung jury and uh, the the district attorney announces immediately that we will retry this this case. Uh, You know, we are immediately going back to the court. Uh, to ask for a date, and and we're we're coming back. We believe we're in the right, um, and you know we believe we have the right person, and we're this is what we're going to do. So, uh, so we knew you know the game wasn't over, and it was it was time to just double down our efforts. Um, so the trial gets rescheduled. We get about six months um, between the two trials, which, which is great. Uh, I was worried they were going to give us six weeks. Um, so we, the trial gets rescheduled for November. Um, and so it gives us, you know, the better part of, of half a year to kind of double down. And we used that time in the laboratory to go back and look at all the things we didn't get all the way to the bottom of, like I had said at the, you know, earlier, we knew there was stuff we hadn't gotten all the way to the bottom of because there was just too much stuff. Uh, so uh, that's what we used our time doing. And um, we found an awful lot of interesting things in those intervening six months that uh, I think none of them changed the, the course of the investigation. None of them changed the conclusions of the investigation. 
but we were able to connect dots better. We were able, so like you just said, you know, in the first trial, we interlaced digital evidence with physical evidence with testimony. Um, you know, and, and the chemical purchase is a perfect example, right? Our digital evidence was interlaced with the physical document that was faxed to, um, to the chemical company and the chemical company's physical records. And then that was interlaced with the testimony of the woman who worked at the chemical company. Um, what we found between the two trials added even more dots in between the start and the end, which I think helped everyone get get to the end and just understand wow this does all fit together so did you get additional evidence we we did not get anything we did not receive anything new so we did not receive any new devices um there, there was really nothing left they had emptied the chiropractic office they had emptied bill and mary's house and they had emptied caitlin conley's house uh and they had emptied uh adam yoder's devices as well so we we kind of had the whole universe already in the evidence room. But what we didn't have was deep dives into some of those things. And probably, you know, not probably, by by far what we didn't have was a deep dive into Adam's devices. And so, you know, the interesting thing is unwittingly, the defense uh, in the case helped the prosecution of the case for the second trial. How so? In between the uh, so in between the two trials, Caitlin switches attorneys uh, and she gets a new attorney. Her first attorney was, um, I mean, he did a good job, right? He, he, he kept a conviction from happening and he certainly was able to create doubt in at least one to two jurors' minds. And that's his job. And, that, and so he did it. Um, he, he was uh, a relatively younger attorney and... Um, so in the second trial, she went with an attorney who has a little more experience, particularly in homicides. He, uh, he's done, he's been around our community for a long time, does a lot of criminal defense, has done a lot of homicide defense. Uh, so he, he comes in uh, pretty quickly after the first trial that she notifies the court that she's changed attorneys. Um, and very quickly, they start fi filing motions. So we understand really early on that their focus is not going to be the same as the first trial. Instead of pointing the finger at Bill, they're going to point the finger at Adam. Uh, so that causes us to say we need to know everything about Adam. We need to go all the way to ground with every shred that we have from Adam. So we had his cell phone. We had his computer. Um, and... You know, quite honestly, in the first trial, those didn't get prior to the first trial. Those didn't get a lot of attention because they failed all of our keywords. Right? There was no nothing on Adam's devices related to colchicine. There was nothing related to toxins. Nothing related to poisons. There were no communications with his mother that were negative or or concerning. There was nothing about how to kill someone. There was nothing about how to how to hide evidence. You know, nothing, nothing, nothing. There was nothing about that fake Gmail account with his name on it. They were never used with that Gmail account. There was no communications with the chemical companies, right? So, so it failed all those tests. And so we focused where obviously we focused our energies where, where they needed to be. Well, now knowing that the defense was heading to point the finger at him, we, we said, okay, well, this is now the focus. Which pieces of digital evidence were your focus at this point? 
so you're talking about between the two trials. So, so the biggest piece is Adam's laptop. Um, so we had it. We still had it. Um, like I said, we, we hadn't driven it all the way to ground during prior to the first trial because it just failed all the tests for is this useful to the to the prosecution. Um, so the the laptop was a number one. We were like, we really have to understand more about Adam. Um, and so that's what we did. And we had known uh, prior to the first trial that uh, Adam had backups of his iPhone on his computer, multiple, uh, like a half a dozen or more. Uh, and we knew they were there. And we had examined one of them. Uh, we had pulled it off of the, the computer. We had, you know, reinflated it and, and used uh, cell phone forensics to, to examine it end to end. And it, it, it hit a dead end, just like everything else with Adam, just like the examination of his live phone when we got it. Um, it just didn't, it didn't touch on any of our tests for, for evidence in this case. So we're like, okay, we, we need to know more. We're going to have to now look at the rest of that laptop, all of his activity, and frankly, we're going to have to look, we're going to have to examine all of those cell phone backups. And we also knew the backups were there because he had mentioned it in an interview with the sheriff's office. There was a conversation he had during one of his interviews uh, with the with the police that um, at some point him and Caitlin, when they were together. Because you haven't really mentioned that yet, but they they were on again and off again, uh, romantically involved for years, um, and really on when they were on, and really off when they were off. So at, he had mentioned to, during an interview, well, at some point when they were you know together, uh, they made the decision to get new phones together, and he had made backups to his to his laptop. But this is years prior to Mary's death. It's really it's outside the the zone of focus for our investigation. So a backup of both their phones? Correct. They're old devices? Old devices, yeah. Okay. Like I said, year, years prior to Mary's death. Okay. So wanting to know everything we could about Adam, we set off to do just that. So it was, you know, redo everything about Adam's devices. And of course, as, as you know, uh, forensic tools change fast. So we always have a, a standing procedure that if more than about six months uh, goes by between an exam and a trial, we're going to redo the exam um, because tools get better, right? There, there's things they find today that they were not capable of seeing six months ago. And that's always a little bit of a difficult thing to explain on a witness stand because you know you're going to get that cross-examination question. Oh, so this evidence just showed up. Well, no, it was always there. We, it was just invisible to us. We, we didn't have a tool to decipher it, right? And just so our listeners know, this is uh, very common amongst forensic tools, right? And when we say forensic tools, we're talking about software for the most part, right? Yes, and, absolutely. And a lot of times this is happening because if you think about it, our um, applications for communication, you know, what if a new app comes about for communication and you're, you know, they become very popular and forensic tools that you have at your hand, they may not be programmed yet or have the code within them to be able to parse that data out, right? Yes. Yes. And a lot of times it's, you know, the truth is one of the jobs of the companies that make forensics tools is to to figure out all that data. And sometimes they have to break, <laughs> they have to break in and reverse engineer, uh, you know, a new app 
to understand how it works, where it stores things, what's the format, et cetera, et cetera. And that takes time. Right. So you may have just a little bit of a delay in there. So for you to say, yeah, we went back and basically you reprocess that is oftentimes a help for you because your tools have had an opportunity to catch up to what data may have actually been on that evidence in the first place, right? Absolutely. And the, the analogy I, I often will use uh, on the witness stand with this is, well, you know, if you rewind two or three hundred years and we, we talk about the criminal investigation, well, there was there was no fingerprint comparisons talked about in those trials. There was no DNA because it, it's not that there weren't fingerprints at the crime scene or there wasn't DNA. We couldn't find it. We didn't know how to find it. We didn't know how to analyze it. And then, you know, fast forward 100 years ago, and now we're talking about fingerprints and fingerprint comparisons and hairs and fibers, but no one's talking about DNA. It's still there. And and now we fast forward to modern, and we're pulling cases out of the vault that are 20, 25 years old, getting DNA off of them and solving crimes the DNA was not just created, it was always there. Our ability to see it, collect it, analyze it has, has you know grown due to technology. Digital forensics is the same thing. Our abilities continue to evolve, continue to improve. Um, doesn't mean that the evidence has changed. We're just able to see more. So you took that opportunity then to use these updated tools to be able to go back, same evidence, reprocess, and tell me what the differences were. Yeah, so... Um, quite, quite frankly, the, the change in versions of the tools didn't do a ton for us by itself. What did do a ton, though, was looking at all the cell phone backups and reinflating every one of them. And now the cell phone tools change even faster than the, than the computer tools for obvious reasons, because the cell phone tools change, you know, the cell phones themselves change so rapidly. Um, and what we found as we started to go through those half a dozen plus backups that were stored on Adam's computer is they were not all Adam's and they were not all from those, that time period he had talked about in his interview of a few years back. What we actually found was there was one outlier. There was one cell phone backup of Caitlin Conley's phone from the time period between Mary Yoder's death and when her physical phone was seized by the police as part of their search warrant. So this gave us a look into Caitlin Conley's cell phone at like a perfect moment in time from an investigative standpoint. But this was on Adam's computer. Correct. How did it get there? Well, the police had to go ask him. <laughs> and uh, he says, I put it there. And, uh, of course, that raised some eyebrows. <laughs> what do you mean you put it there? Uh, so he knew that her phone had been paired with his computer. So they were, they were Apple devices, and he had iTunes running on the computer. Um, and, you know, this is, this is several years ago, you know, prior. And this is when I, you know, making iTunes backups was probably a lot more in, in vogue than it is today, where everyone has iCloud accounts. Um, and so he actually explained to the investigators that uh, Caitlin and I got together again after my mother's death. She was really helping me through it. And, you know, we became romantically involved again. And she was at my place. And uh, he said, I really just, I didn't like the way the relationship was going. And I didn't like some of the questions she was asking. And, uh, 
he actually began to he had actually been uh really really sick uh prior to his mother's death for a period of time and he actually had some suspicions that uh caitlin may have been involved in that um kind of side note caitlin had given him some special vitamins to take uh, and then texted him incessantly, making sure he was taking all of his vitamins. Those are the kinds of things that didn't come out at the trial. Because, <laughs> right. so, uh, you know, he, she wasn't on trial for attempting to kill Adam Yoder. Uh, but anyways, he started to get, you know, ba basically just uh, nervous. And he started to get a, a bad feeling. And he, he really was getting concerned about her and her motives and so he got up in the middle of the night while she was asleep and plugged her phone into his laptop and uh knowing that itunes would back it up and it did uh and, he, and that was it he ignored it from there he just completely ignored it didn't like run to the police and say hey look i got this backup never told us when he when he turned the laptop into the police he never said oh by the way he just said, oh, he just, I don't know if he forgot about it or ignored it or didn't think it was valuable or what. Uh, he just, it just disappeared in his, in his memory. So now we're between trials and now we have it. And uh, it just gives us this incredible view of what's going on on her device, you know, in that period of time after Mary's death. And we're going to have to leave it there. We have so much to talk about in this case, but unfortunately, we can't get it all into one episode. So we'll pick up with the examination of the iPhone backup in part two, which we'll post in the next few days. Digital Forensics in Real Life is a production of Magnet Forensics. This episode was mixed and edited by Phil Frucklidge with production help from Lindsay Ward. Our original theme music is by Rick Andrade. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>